This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Yadi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. Like Lila, I've been thinking a lot about middle school this week because Levi graduated middle school yesterday and thankfully seems to have come out of it relatively unscathed, though I think in some ways only time will tell. (laughs) The siyum, which is the Hebrew word for conclusion, Um, which is what um, the school that Levi um, has been at, Milken um, Community Middle School and Milken High School, that's what they call their graduation ceremony. The CM was very emotional for me as a parent, watching this little person, and for the old timers in the room, you might remember how attached my little people and I were. I don't think I gave a sermon for the first 10 years at Icar, which one of them did not run over to jump on me and ask for a hug or tell me how the siblings weren't sharing the Cheerios. Now I sit in this massive sanctuary space watching the littlest of my little people walking across the stage, becoming himself in the world. And I realize that as a parent, I am reaching the wondrous edge of my influence over their lives and realizing that my people now belong much more to the world than they do to us. So it was a bit of an emotional day and I cried the whole time. (laughs) But the truth is that's not the only reason that I was emotional at the CUM concluding my youngest child's uh, time in middle school. Throughout this ceremony, I was watching the students, these young people finding their voices old enough to dress like grown-ups in some ways, but still holding the emotional hearts of children. I was watching the students interact with one another and paying attention to who got cheers and who got quiet jeers, who was brave and who played it safe, who hung with the crowd and who stood apart from the crowd. And I was thrust right back into my own middle school cafeteria because our school back in New Jersey made the brilliant decision that on the first day of middle school, you must choose or be chosen by three other people in whose hands your social destiny would lie. And that would be the crew that you would have to sit with in the cafeteria every single day for the rest of middle school. And I did have a couple of friends, but no one that I was close enough to be invited to sit with. And as I reflect on it, I have to be honest that no one I wanted to sit with wanted to sit with me. And I know I'm not alone here. I actually heard Ezra Klein a couple of weeks ago talking about how he didn't have any friends growing up. For God's sake, Adam Wergelis, who's essentially a veritable social supernova here at ICAR says that he didn't have any friends until college. Many people I love spent middle school lunch in the bathroom or in the history teacher's empty classroom. 
or sitting at a table full of people but feeling completely alone. I remember sitting with a dear friend some years ago who told me that her single wish for her child was that he would one day have a friend. Several years ago, I shared with this community that I sat as we entered the book of Numbers Bamidbar with the rather dry recitation of desert encampments and I wept. I wept because everyone has a place. Judah sits to the east and Reuven to the south and Ephraim to the west and Don to the north and each person encamped with their designated tribe. And every tribe could wave a banner with their own unique insignia and these colored flags. Everybody was part of some community, a community of purpose. And at least in the way that our tradition imagines this time, even though they were out in the midst of the wilderness, there were no outliers. And as I sat and read the Parsha years ago, I envied our ancestors. I envied how everyone had their rightful place. At the time, you might remember, there was another war raging in Israel-Palestine, and there were protests on both sides of Wilshire, and I had this intense feeling in my heart, I am not this, and I am not this. And I wondered, what must it feel like to fit into a camp? I envied our ancestors, who all seemed to have their proper place. What must it feel like to live so comfortably entrenched at your safe table, where the people you want to sit with want you as much as you want them? What happens to the people who see the truths at multiple camps and multiple tables? Where do the people go who hold competing narratives and therefore don't fit comfortably or safely either in one or another? And it's not only when we talk about Israel-Palestine that these feelings are elicited with every conflagration these days. There are these massive rifts between friends and families, right and left, right and wrong, victim and villain. And it's left many of us not only with a sense of anguish, but also with a deep sense of loneliness. And I am sure that that's why so much of my work these days is centered around loneliness, around trying to understand what happens to the human heart when we feel that we just don't quite belong, that there's no home front for us, there's no camp that can contain us, no table waiting for us. I've been consumed reading studies and books and trying to understand the ways that this social sickness has permeated our social environments far beyond the middle school cafeteria. And I concluded years ago, as I wept reading Bamidbar, that we who fit into no desert encampment are like the Levi'im, we're like the priests, who are not part of the formation. They fit nowhere, and so they're everywhere all at once. And it is they who are charged with the holiest work of all in the camp, la'avod, avodah, ba'olamu'ed, to do the holy work in the holiest of places. And isn't it some comfort that they are able to do that work together? Well, this parsha, parshat Baha'alotcha, continues that thread. And here we see both the beauty and the limits of that reality. The parsha begins in chapter 8 of the book of Numbers with God calling out to Moses and telling Moses to tell Aaron to light the lamps, seven lamps that will give light toward the body of this menorah. The rabbis ask why it is that the parsha starts this way. 
What's the significance of this recitation of Aaron's responsibilities to light the menorah? And Rashi, our chief commentator of Torah, uses the opportunity not only to think about Aaron's priestly role, but to invite us to dive a little bit into Aaron's inner state, to gaze upon Aaron's broken heart. Here's what Rashi says, which he derives from Midrash Tanhuma, that Aaron witnessed how all of the other tribes were given a role during the building of the Mishkan at the end of the last parasha, and it broke his heart. He felt excluded. He felt alienated and worthless. And so God consoles Aaron, saying, Al don't worry, don't fear. You have something great in you too. And the thing in you will heal you and it will heal them. I'm stunned by this reading. The rabbis immediately read a ritual directive as a window into Aaron's soul, into his brokenness and into his beauty. This is not the obvious surface reading of this text, but this is immediately where our rabbis go. Don't worry, God is saying. Your gift might not be something that people yet understand. When they look at you today, they might only see that you're different from them. Maybe you're smaller. Maybe you're weirder. Maybe you have a funny laugh, or you sing off key, or you don't wear the right shoes, or you're too tall, or you're too short, or you're too Jewish, or too Muslim, or too black, or too gay. Maybe you chew too loudly, or you ask too many questions in class, or you're just too serious all the time. But know this, God says, you are destined for something more. You don't even understand it now, but you need to trust that there is something alive in you, maybe even something that's born of your discomfort today. And it is beautiful and it matters. The rabbis even suggest that the work that Aaron's called to is not only important, but it may even be more important and more significant than all the people who lived comfortably in all of those camps, all of those tribes who brought all of their heavy laden silver bowls and silver basins and fine flour and bulls and rams and he goats and sheep. And maybe that's because all the other gifts are given once, whereas the work of lighting the menorah is continual. It's every day. Maybe the ritual task of lighting the menorah is training for a greater presence, for perpetual growth, or maybe it's something even deeper. And here I turn us to Ramban, to Nachmanides, who cites another Midrash, saying that the particular ritual that Aaron and the Levites are called to in lighting the menorah is not only continual, but it's actually eternal. Because Aaron doesn't know it then, but we know now that one day the Mishkan won't even exist. And even the Beit HaMikdash, the great temple, will no longer exist but the menorah will transform itself into the Chanukiah. That lamp will transform itself into the source of light that will light up our homes even in the darkest of times, even thousands of years later. The menorah becomes the symbol of transformation. Think about this. Each of those tribes in the desert made these grand gestures, these unified gestures of commitment. But the one who feels separate and apart, the one who feels lonely and irrelevant, that's the one whose yearning and longing and outcry becomes the messenger 
becomes the guardian of the very object, the very ritual that will reverberate throughout the years as an eternal symbol of hope and healing. I want to share that last month, some very disturbing data came out from the CDC, from the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention. And I don't want to scare us, but I want to speak honestly about what we now know. That in the year 2021, nearly 60% of US teenage girls said that they feel sad or hopeless. This is the highest number in a decade. Nearly one out of three female high school students said that she seriously considered suicide in the year 2021. 24% made a plan for suicide. 13% actually tried. The boys' numbers are a little bit lower, but they're still terrifyingly high. What we've learned is that suicidal thinking was even more common among teenagers who did not identify as cisgendered and heterosexual, and that, like most things, there is, of course, a racial bias here as well. This is a five-alarm fire for our community and for our country. We are in the midst of a massive crisis right now, a public health crisis. And what we need is for every single person to know the numbers 988 the same way we know the number 911, the suicide and crisis hotline, as a place that we can call when we're in those moments of darkness and despair and aloneness and we think that nobody in the world cares because someone in the world cares. And there is vast systemic work that has to be done in our society to remedy this. Today, our parsha is calling out to us with a spiritual message from the ancient world, a word of grace for those who need it in this moment, whether they're in middle school or they're in high school or beyond. And that word is, you are not the first person to feel this way. The great Aharon, the priest, Moshe's own brother, felt alone and envious and worthless and irrelevant and like his whole world was encased in darkness. And what he learned is that it gets better, that the world is not nearly as cruel as it might seem when the tribes are aligning in the desert or when you're choosing tables in your middle school cafeteria, because there are wonderful people sitting at tables with open seats that are waiting for you, people you haven't even met yet, who will fill your life with joy and purpose. There's beauty in this world that we can't even imagine, but trust me, it's there. And there's a light that's being born even in the struggle, a light that lives in you, a light that you and I will be able to usher into this world, a light of healing and love, a light that will be eternal and a light that will help others find their way into the light as well. Until we can all bask in the joy and the wholeheartedness of knowing that we are loved, deeply loved, it is our work, all of us, to be the reminder to Aaron, to the kid who's sitting on the side, to every one of us and to all of us, that we are not alone. And so, as God turned to Aaron and said, I'll teach you I'll teach you don't you worry. We become the messengers of God in turning to one another 
and offering those words of comfort and love. Hold on, we say. Please hold on. Shabbat shalom. Hi, it's Rabbi Brous again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission, to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you, maybe even in person, sometime soon.